Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined in person by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, we are in your office right now. Uh, this is the rarest of things, but we're actually in the same place at the same time. We are indeed. And so we, we are recording together. And, and actually, this is somewhat... It's, 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 it's fortuitous, really, because... Um, we're recording this podcast on Monday, the 21st of June, but it's really our, our podcast episode for Friday. We're recording it again because we recorded a podcast on Friday and it was no good excuse. Uh, we were we were both a little punchy. You were very amped up and excited and I was very strung out and jaded and <laughs> precious little came of that in the way of useful analysis of the week's events. It, it was, you know, in, in, in the biz, friends, there is... Um, uh, the sort of conflict that makes for good and interesting, uh, you know, uh, radio content, audio content, the sort of sort of back and forth that the je ne sais quoi, if you will, of, of uh, two friends hashing something out that you all have come to love. But then there is just sort of the uncomfortable tension of two people who are both a little bit strung out on uh, having worked hard for a couple of days and having markedly different sort of reactions to that. Um, not even in conflict so much as just having a tense conversation. Yeah, I look. It was it was a busy and very interesting week, and high tension at times. And I, yeah, I don't think we were either one of us in a particularly good place to to break things down in a meaningful way. And I think that probably came across. So what we decided to do, uh, what we decided to do is to um, basically make the show again. So uh, we're doing that. And we're doing it here. And the purpose of this show is basically just to break down. Um, the uh, the USCCB meeting of last week. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I guess it's kind of fortuitous that we're doing it now on Monday, three days later, because quite a lot happened actually on Friday and uh, thereafter over the weekend that, you know, merits as interesting context and discussion as well. Um, and kind of goes to some of the things that we wanted to talk about on Friday, but sort of illustrates the point more broadly. Um, about how how the conference and what it deliberated has been received um, and presented versus yeah. what actually happened. Yeah, I think that's right. So the big story of the bishops' conference last week, and um, if you don't, if you are just tuning into the show for the first time, or if you are turning tuning into the show but you forgot that last week was the bishops' conference meeting or something, the big story of the bishops' conference meeting last week, uh, which took place over Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of last week in the afternoons on Zoom was a vote the bishops had on essentially whether or not to draft a document to be voted upon later in the future on this question of um, Eucharistic coherence. Essentially what the bishops have now framed as a catechetical document on the, on the Eucharist, part of which would um, uh, address kind of proper uh, disposition for reception of Holy Communion. Um, yeah, I, uh, the, the document, the much-trailed, much-discussed document on not even just Eucharistic coherence um, on, on the entire nature of the Eucharist, sort of a catechetical teaching document on the whole sacrament uh, in, in three parts was something that people got very, very excited about beforehand. They got very, very excited about during the conference and got even more excited about after the votes sort of came in on Friday morning or Friday early afternoon, I should say. Um, and, you know, what the bishops agreed to do by a, percentage of about 75%, I think I'm right in saying, uh, is to proceed with the drafting of a document, which they will then discuss and amend and debate 
again. Probably in November. Probably in November, I would imagine. Um, and of course, the really thorny part of this was sort of one of the points within the third part of this proposed document, which hasn't even written yet on on so-called Eucharistic coherence, which is how does one you know receive the Eucharist, uh, in what states should one receive or not receive the Eucharist, and how that may or may not be either implicitly or explicitly be said to apply to particularly prominent Catholic politicians who have taken policy stances against fundamental aspects which is of the to say Biden yes. I mean there's no way around it which is to say Biden Biden was at time Biden was the elephant in the room at times the elephant who was spoken of at times the elephant who sort of was only sort of referenced ominously and at times the, the elephant who was rather sort of denied to be there at all but Biden was in fact the elephant in the room and the reason for that is because um, while the bishops now say that this is a broad sort of catechetical document intended to teach about the Eucharist because many Catholics don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, etc., etc. It began with, uh, the idea for the document began with a working group that the bishops um, founded on the Biden administration and what Archbishop Gomez called the unique challenges of the Biden administration for the bishops' conference. So one of the most interesting things about this whole debate was the way in which Biden kind of wove in and out of it. There would be bishops who would say, well, yeah, this is mostly a teaching document and sure, we're going to address um, this issue of um, Eucharistic consistency, as they would say, um, but it's mostly a teaching document, and why would anyone have suspicion of that? And then the next bishop would be like, well, we have to issue it right now because Biden. And uh, and so there was, I think, <laughs> um, a rhetorical inconsistency um, among the bishops as as they talked about uh, as they talked about it. To be sure, I think that's true. I, I, the thing that struck me most during the debate. Um, which sort of took place in two halves. The first was a Wednesday morning debate or Wednesday early afternoon debate uh, in the conference's first session, sort of as they opened and started debating whether or not to adopt the agenda, which is ordinarily, you know, a 30-second thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. to adopt, adopt the agenda, propose, seconded, anyone opposed, no, fine, adopted. And they instead argued for almost an hour about whether or not they should adopt the agenda and the, the motion was to amend the agenda to allow unlimited time to discuss the document on the Eucharistic coherence, which, you know, is it, it, it was interesting as a detail just because the people who seemed to be supporting it were the people who, supporting this unlimited debate, were the people who'd previously written to Archbishop Gomez saying, we don't want any debate on this at all. And yeah. so there was a debate about whether this was basically trying to filibuster the whole idea or whatever else. And, you know, so that that was an interesting sort of change of parliamentary tactics to observe. But but the thing that really struck me uh, was, was how much sort of misconception there was among the bishops about what the document was for and what had been proposed by the doctrinal committee and what the document um, looked, what a draft document would look like and what it would say and about whom or not about whom. You know, a lot of the bishops spoke and said, you know, well, what about this national policy for politicians not being able to receive communion? And, you know, Bishop Rhodes, who's the chairman of the doctrinal committee, said, we're not going to, you know, th- don't be confused. When people keep hearing this word national policy, we're not talking about it. We were never talking about issuing norms that are going to bind individual bishops. We can't do that. Yeah. We would never do that. Yeah. But a lot of the bishops seem to come into this debate expecting that that's what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was kind of, that really struck me. And I think uh, goes to, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the conversation, but, you know, just to sort of leave a bookmark for something we'll talk about later. I think it really goes to the kind of, uh, confusion that's been around this whole discussion, even amongst the bishops, and a lot of it, and how it's played out in the media, and how you know what the bishops intended to do, proposed to do, and now are going to do has been, well, I, there's no other word for it, misrepresented and mischaracterized almost across the board. Yeah, I mean, so bishops on the one hand who are sort of saying, how can we possibly dare to do this, and then Bishop Rhodes saying, you know, it is not our intention to create a national policy, and then 
bishops, you know, sort of supporting the document saying, well, it's not our intention to create a national policy, but we do need to do it right now because we need to be absolutely clear that politicians who support expanded legal protection for abortion shouldn't approach Holy Communion. But the weird thing even about that position is that the, the bishops, I think, had made clear, and Archbishop Gomez had made clear, and Bishop Rhodes in this presentation had made clear that they really were not intending to be especially directive, especially about sort of the point of prohibition of Holy Communion. That, they, that, that you know, in a certain way, I think if there hadn't been all this controversy about the controversy about the document, after the document was written and passed, a lot of people would have said, hey, how come you didn't say anything about prohibition of Holy Communion here? I mean, a lot of people would have criticized the document for being um, not as, as strenuous, I guess, as they expected, or not sort of as... Um, as hard on pro-choice politicians as they would have expected, who are now, because of the framing of the document, like completely supportive of it and saying, yeah, the bishops are doing the right thing here because the bishops are getting all the the sort of widespread, both internal criticism, the bishops who are supporting the document are both getting internal criticism about it and then sort of widespread social um, excoriation over it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, if you if you look back, as we did in the sort of run-up to the conference meeting, looking at previous statements by the USCCB on the subject of... Eucharistic consistency, if you like, and even Catholic politicians in the reception of communion. I mean, in 2006, they had a document that basically said, if you're publicly taking stances against the church's moral teaching that amount to a state yeah. of grave sin, you shouldn't, you shouldn't pro- approach Holy communion. You shouldn't yeah. approach communion. Um, and, and I think it, I think it's interesting and instructive the extent to which we have moved along as a as a culture and as a society in the Church of the United States that what. I can't remember happening in 2006, so presumably uncontroversial was it, um, that we've now got to a place where everyone seems to be lighting their hair on fire about the idea of just repeating what they've always said in this sense. Yeah. And yeah. I think part of the reason for that is, and you know, this struck me during the press conferences, um, is you know, reporters, mostly not Catholic reporters or not reporters for Catholic outlets, uh, kept asking, yes, but what are you going to say about Joe Biden? What are you going to say about Joe Biden? It's like, well... The conference is never going to say anything about Joe Biden in particular. Yeah. That, you know, Joe Biden is, if you like, the catalyst for why this document uh, needs to be produced in the mind of the bishops. But that doesn't mean that the document was ever intended to focus on him personally, that Joe Biden is, in this sense, uh, totemic. He's, you know, he's emblematic of a kind of Catholic, of a kind of Catholic practice in this country that's grown up and grown more and more entrenched in this country in the last 15 years since the last uh, document on came the, out. Yeah, document came out. And it, it shows the which, you know, the, the church's position hasn't changed. The bishop's position, I presume, as a conference hasn't changed. But just restating what they said in tw- 15 years ago is now, you know, radioactive as far as yeah. people are concerned. And I find that very interesting. Well, there is a way in which, uh, and I don't think it's a 15 year thing, I think it's a much broader thing. And maybe. Uh, maybe I don't have the historical context to be able to say that it, how broad it really is, but there is a way in which um, there are, if you like, sort of two, uh, a number of different sort of iterations of Catholicism in America, but sort of two prevailing iterations that I think were sort of held up against each other and in conflict with each other during the debate of the bishops on this document is sort of the cadre of Catholics who would equate Catholic practice with adherence or docility to sort of the teaching office of the church, which is to say that who would perceive that there's some necessary unity between um, Catholic practice and accepting what Catholic doctrine would teach on any number of both, you know, sort of strictly um, theological issues and then moral issues, you know, as such, um, who, who would sort of say uh, the faith is at the center of my life and part of the notion of the faith of being at the center of my life is what the faith teaches and how that impacts my life. Um, 
and that is a sort of experience of Catholicism that is uh, that I think is probably the one in which you and I tend to you know live live and move and have our being. Um, e- even if at times you know, which is not to say that that either of us is uh, is always adherent in in a moral and practical way to the teaching of the church, but which is to say that we would both agree that we must affirm it and strive towards it, and that that is what it is to become a saint. Um, and then there is an experience of Catholicism of in, in America in which what is most emphasized is um, ritual and culture, um, sometimes sort of um, with a conscious opposition to doctrine or a conscious uh, sort of willingness to disregard doctrine, but often I think with the naivete or ignorance of, of Catholic doctrine, I mean just a wholesale ignorance of it, where I think there are, and I have the experience of sort of hanging out in this kind of Catholicism too, especially... Um, well, especially at certain points in my life, I have the experience of sort of running into this kind of Catholicism too. Uh, people would say my Catholic identity is principally about the historicity of, of this ritual in my family culture, you know, that my, grandpa- my, my grandparents went to Mass, my parents went to Mass, I go to Mass, I want to impart that to my kids, our family's all together at Mass, we're, you know, praying together, and um, we have these rituals and symbols, um, you know, to varying degrees of the rosary and crucifixes in our house and these kinds of things, and they convey to um, to us a certain kind of meaning, but the the ritual and the conveyance in a certain way is the meaning, right? I mean, we think it is important to pass these things on in a certain way, absent of the specificity of their content. Now, there's a sort of general sense in which Catholicism is about being sort of having universal positive regard for others and a sort of disposition towards charity and a soup kitchen and these kinds of things, but absent sort of the specificity of um, of Catholic doctrine. Oftentimes, I think without even awareness, sort of 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 the um, of, of its absence in the role of that kind of Catholicism, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I, I mean, I think this has been a trend not just in the Church in the United States, but all over the place for quite a while. And I mean, it's something that the nuncio talked yeah. about and touched on in yeah. his in his address, sort of not quite open. I mean, usually it would be considered to be opening the, the conference because they had this hour long debate about whether or not to adopt the agenda. The nuncio ended up yeah. actually speaking after. Um, that, but you know, he talked about, and in fact, he was quoting Pope Francis when he talked about it. And this is what he said was this: um, that he said there's the there's the development of a mentality amongst Catholics of a religious supermarket. Yeah. Um, and this is this is the quote from Francis that the Nuncio said, which is, "It is as if religion is a product to be consumed, mm-hmm. very much linked to my right. tastes and to a certain type of diffuse theism, right? Precisely. Carried forward within the parameters of a new age, where it's mixed a lot with personal satisfaction, relaxation, and well-being." And it is what creates, I believe, and I, in this case, being the Pope, um, in the end, an a la carte religion. I believe that one has to rediscover the religious act as a movement towards an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, what I, I absolutely recognize and agree with what you're saying, and I think this is the, I think Pope Francis's diagnosis of this trend yeah. is very, uh, is very clear and very, um, and very well articulated. Which is, there becomes um, absent a true charismatic appreciation of the of the living announcement of the gospel which was the substance of archbishop pierre the nuncio's speech to the u.s bishops and absent uh, a real theological engagement with the content of the sacraments can at the intellectual level be lived as a sort of cultic practice of natural religion which just has a catholic flavor if you like that yeah. yes there's a there's a god probably or some sort of deity right. and that god should probably be in some way 
um, either honored or appeased or solicited. And, and that God wants us to love each other in a very general kind of yeah. way, especially family and Christmas. Exactly. And the way that we do that is we go to the religious place and we say right. the religious Precisely. words and right. we, you know, but that this is, you know, it's a kind of sacramentalized paganism that it's, you know, the, the instinct is to honor the sort of angry sky magic and make sure he stays on sides mm-hmm. um, rather than having an encounter with the the actual founding principle of the uh, of Christianity, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. So I, I think that was all very well said by Pierre. And I, what, what what's occurred to me, and I, I've seen this sort of happening with more and more clarity over the last few weeks as people have sort of more and more collectively lost their minds over the bishop's conference and what they may or may not do, um, is communion with the church is defined legally, canonically, as consisting of three parts, which is hierarchy, you know, the communion and authority, basically, um, the sacraments and in faith. Yeah. And more and more I see that uh, sort of on fringes on both sides, what you might call the sort of reactionary conservative or the progressive wings. I, I think both of those uh, phrases are very, very unhelpful as words, but I just, I, short of inventing new terms now, which won't be useful, I, I choose to use them, um, which is that communion with the church, if it's these three essential aspects with the church says, if you don't do all three of them, you're either in a state of either schism, apostasy, or heresy, you know, depending on which one of the three you pick. Um, well, I would just say, I would just make a little clarity there. If you don't do all three of them after our repeated warnings and admonitions that you start doing them, otherwise you're in sin, right? I mean, it, right. It, yeah, okay. So if you, but I'm saying the nature, not, yeah. the nature of mm-hmm. each one of those things. Yes, you know, yeah, that um, schism is a breach with authority. Heresy right. is a breach with teaching. Yeah, apostasy is renouncing the whole faith. Mm-hmm. Right, these, you right. know, if you like these these criminal headings that we have articulate. I mean, they're also sins. It's, yes, you know, yeah. you, you can and just, and the, the those sort of legal categories only come after. Some periods sure. of gravity. Okay. Nevertheless, the definitions is sinfulness because those three things are both crimes and sins. Yeah. The, the, the sort of definitions of them apply to these three forms of communion one is obliged to maintain with the church. Mm-hmm. And it seems increasingly clear to me that the sort of fringe elements on both sides uh, view this as kind of a best two out of three. Yeah. You know, that you get on the one hand people, and I think Joe Biden is a good, uh, a, a good, if you like, banner poster boy for this, which is a Catholic who goes, you know, he's sort of of in communion with the sacraments, or at least would like to be, and wants to go to the church on Sunday and receive the sacraments. He's more or less in communion with the hierarchy in the sense that he doesn't renounce the authority of the bishops in any particular way. Um, but he's made it very clear that there are lines in, in the belief where he just sort of carves himself a, yeah. a sort of, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, particularly around issues to do with abortion, which is, as Pope Francis reminds us, morally equivalent to contract killing yeah. and Nazi eugenics. So that's a big deal. And to sort of say, well, I'll take these two and not the third, and I'm still devout and practicing Catholic. And then on the other side of the sort of ecclesiological spectrum, you have, um, you know, we saw this video that I was frankly shocked by and made me very concerned by, of this Father James Altman. Mm-hmm having this sort of, you know, screed against various bishops. And, and Father James Altman is this, is this Wisconsin priest who has grown increasingly erratic in these positions of opposition to the authority of the bishops. Right. And he is himself emblematic yeah. of a kind of Catholic, whether it's, you know, a sort of lay YouTube televangelist yeah. arguing against the church or a species of of cleric in the church who sort of renounces the authority of the yeah. church, renounces the Pope and the bishops and, you know, jabs his finger at the screen and says, I'll tell you what, Alan, you know, yeah. um, and all this stuff who says, well, I've got the sacraments and I believe the real faith. Right. 
but the hierarchy can go, you know, soak yeah. their heads. Yeah. And and both of these breaches are breaches of communion. And I think it's showing that, you know, the, the holistic presentation of what it is to be a Catholic, of what it is to be in the church, yeah. which is these three essential elements, and they're not yeah. hierarchically ranked. You need all three of yeah. them, um, is something that we've lost as a church. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And and I think a lot of times that's, that's out of – I genuinely think a lot of times that's out of ignorance. That's simply out of – I think there are great swaths of sort of practicing Catholics in, in – especially in um, – Maybe sort of historically Catholic parts of the country. I think, you know, in, we're here in the in in the Northeast right now because we're hanging out in in an undisclosed location that is your office. But I think in sort of the Northeast, where the faith is far more sort of this long uh, expressed far more in this sort of long-standing institutional thing, um, it, it is more often the case that people could practice the faith. I think for great periods of their life without ever even hearing a presentation of the kinds of things that we're talking about. And if that's true, you know, which in my own experience it is, um, if that's true, then many of the people, if Biden is sort of emblematic of them, one thing that would sort of, I think, make Biden himself unique among them is being aware that there's a great sort of controversy about all of this, which he's aware of because he reads his name in the papers, which we'll get to. But I think well, he's not just aware because he reads his name in his papers. He's aware of it because at least in the, I think it was 2020, no, sorry, not 2020, um, 2020. 12 vice presidential debate he was asked about his position yeah. in his Catholicism and abortion and he gave a very shockingly coherent and I would say self-damning articulation yeah. of his point yeah. of view which is he's fully aware of what the church teaches on abortion which yeah. is that it is the innocent taking it is the taking of an innocent human life and is and that life begins at conception and all this yeah. and he said and I that's what my church teaches and I accept all of that but I just am not going to go with go that, with that in, and yeah, in my which, actual life. Yeah. And so I, he's not only aware of it implicitly, he's explicitly addressed the issue. And said, I, I just, it just doesn't matter to me. Whereas I think for many more people, there may be sort of a way, a, an awareness of these things, but not presented in a coherent and systematic way, or certainly not in a compelling way. And so there is not, it's not as if, I think often sort of folks who would practice that sort of method B Catholicism, which we described, which would be sort of ritual and practice and theism, are calumniated by the first group, frankly, you know, it's sort of like, well, they don't believe, they, they refuse to accept. But, but I think often it's the, go- the, the gospel in its fullness is often, has often not been presented. I think it's entirely possible to, as I say, to sort of practice the faith in, in, um, in certain corners of American Catholicism without ever sort of even being aware of the necessity of integrity between these things. Or with having the idea that, yes, the church has doctrinal positions, I'm not entirely keen on them, but one can sort of be uh, zealous about them, but one needn't be. One can sort of be a fundamentalist about them, but one needn't be without sort of understanding the, that integration. So I think um, if, if the by if the debate over the Eucharistic coherence document exhibited a diagnosis of this problem, which again I think was murky. There were times when bishops expressed it clearly, times when bishops um, didn't um, express it clearly. Um, but if it sort of brought to the fore this problem then the interesting thing about the bishops' conference meeting for me is that there were two other things that were discussed that are possibly of far greater importance because um, there are solutions to the problem. Now, some catechesis on the Eucharist is great, but again, if you're not sort of keyed into that kind of thing, what's the likelihood that you're actually going to read a USCCB document on the Eucharist, right? I mean, if you, if you well, sort of don't... people didn't manage to read the, the actual... The 2006 one. In fact, many bishops seem surprised by the existence of the 2006 one. Well, and not only that, it seems perfectly clear that a number of the bishops were, and certainly a lot of the media covering it, were unfamiliar with the 
content of the proposed outline right. for a draft document. Like, yeah. You know, when they'd say, well, where's the section? You know, what, what, what are you going to write this section on, um, you know, denying Joe Biden? Community? Like, That's not in the. Yeah. We, we circulated a draft yeah. outline. Yeah. Everyone saw it. I know everyone saw it because we published it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, yeah. it's not there. It was never going to be there. Yeah. And so there was. This, but I mean, I take your point about. You know, this not being a malicious omission on the part of many people that they're living their faith at this level because they don't know any different. And I think it's absolutely true. And and the way we know it's true is because one thing the bishops did talk about a lot was the need for this teaching document on the Eucharist outside of any example being given by a Catholic politician and their opinions on abortion, just because it now looks like, according to all the polling we've seen over the last few years, belief in the true presence in the Eucharist is a minority concern. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting on that point. Our Archbishop Wenske of Miami said, you know, our people, he, he said, our people have um, have a devotion to the Eucharist. They believe in the Eucharist. They often don't know how to articulate it. And from his view, he said, you know, the, the questions were asked in a way that were that maybe would have required in order to sort of get the right answer, uh, a higher level of being able to make distinctions than one would expect out of people who, you know, nevertheless might really sort of love the Eucharist. And he talked about the rise of Eucharistic adoration, Eucharistic processions, and other things in his diocese. And so that pointed, I think, to a view that I thought was a, a, a really sort of merciful and pastoral view, which said, no, I see living out in people's lives a desire for um, what you might call Eucharistic integrity, um, for a Eucharistically centered life, even if the, there's not the language there to be able to articulate it. And we should be wary, wary of a kind of hyper-rationalism that perceives that the only important sort of measure is the ability to, to uh, articulate it appropriately. Although at the same time, I think the Pew survey does indeed indicate there's some real issues. And that gets to the kind of point the points I wanted to make about the two things that I think were really important at the U.S. bishops meeting that were overshadowed by the debate. If the debate surfaced or diagnosed the problem, then two things propose solutions to the problem in different ways. Um, one is the, uh, the, tri- the, the development of um, uh, uh, something that would be an outgrowth of the conference's subcommittee on the catechism, which is uh, something they're calling a catechetical institute. And it was not immediately clear to me what it was that they were talking about when they were talking about a catechetical institute. There was the, 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 the explanations that came out were not always immediately clear. But I did a little bit of homework Are after. Are you making fun of Bishop Caggiano's Brooklyn accent? Is that what's going on <laughs> it's here? It's not Bishop Caggiano's Brooklyn accent. It's that Bishop Caggiano started explaining the catechetical institute. Because you started in about the Utes again. I, know. <laughs> I did start in about the Utes again. But Bishop Caggiano started explaining the catechetical institute as if everyone who was listening already knew what the catechetical institute was. There's a certain irony to that when it comes to talking about how to teach. But <laughs> my point but is the, not. This to is the whole problem. This is the whole crisis yeah. of formation mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. church. Yes. Yeah. Everyone assumes things that no one has been well, taught. I think it's true. Bishop Kajianosar started the conversation midstream, and now we're going to tell you what the Catechetical Institute isn't. And now seven principles on it. And it, it took quite some time in, the com- in his presentation of it to say, Here's a comprehensive vision of what we're talking about with the Catechetical Institute. And even after he said that, I still had questions that I had to go digging around in other places. I think that is emblematic of the thing. And, you know, no disrespect to Bishop Caggiano, but it was richly and deliciously ironic that the explanation of the thing about how to teach the faith came in disjointed pieces. Um, Nevertheless. Would you describe it as fugazi? (laughs) Presentation aside, um, the idea of the idea that the subcommittee on the catechism is developing is essentially an idea that aims uh, to better help the publishers of catechetical texts and the publishers of other catechetical material and then catechists at the diocesan and parish level sort of see catechesis, the teaching of the faith, as something that's more than teaching 
um, a set of a set of sort of rationalistic principles, but rather that catechesis be thought of as the formation of a of a mindset. And it, it does seem to me, uh, drawing from the general director of catechesis and many other things, and it's not an original idea, but it is true that um, re- fundamentally catechesis is the formation of a worldview, a, 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 a way of seeing the world and appropriating it and making judgments about it through the lens of faith and through the lens of what the church teaches uh, about what's true about the human person and about sin and redemption. And, and that is not always what I think exists in catechetical materials um, for most people who go to CCD or Catholic schools in this country. In fact, most of the time, it's a pretty far cry from that. I Yes, I agree with you, but catechesis is also a question of imparting intellectual understanding and knowledge yes, of certain sure. truths. And yeah. I think one of the things that really came up uh, for me in the, in the debate amongst the bishops, although I think the debate amongst the bishops illustrated how we got this problem rather than the problem itself, Um, But certainly in the backlash to all of this, what I understood from um, the reaction to the bishop's vote and everything was that uh, it's not just the Eucharist that most Catholics don't seem to understandably. It's the concept of sin. Yeah. That sin is a spiritual reality doesn't seem to be something that people are capable of wrapping their heads around. And that's a big problem. Like the people seem to have, and this is sort of my interpretation of people's reactions to the debate about whether or not, for example, Catholic politicians should receive communion. It's like, well... Yeah, they mean well, but they okay, they voted that way on Monday, but you know, they weren't like promoting abortion in church when they get there on Sunday and how dare you, you know, the idea of an actual spiritual state of sin. Yeah. It, it, it's just vanished. Yeah. And yeah. I mean I, some of the rhetoric from the from the bishops during the debate I thought was a perfect encapsulation of how we get this kind of misunderstanding in the faithful, which is there was a lot of talk and sort of, you know, well, we're all sinners and none of us are worthy who to receive. Who am I to judge? Oh. Okay, no, who, who am I to judge is a blow my own brains out <laughs> moment of a different kind. And we can talk about how unbelievably stupid and actually in this case, perfectly, in, in, in inversely invoked compared to how the the actual mm-hmm. statement was made by the Holy Father. And in fact, we are going to, I'm making a note. I'm, I'm writing down who am I to judge. We're coming back to this because that was so dumb. I, I want to pull it apart. <laughs> and anyway, okay, no, but so the problem is people saying, um, but we're all sinners and none of us are, are worthy to receive communion. And that is, first of all, it's true. We are all sinners and yeah. none of us are, can earn the grace of the sacrament. Yeah. For sure, that is true. Yeah. Which is why we have, for example, penitential rites built into every stage of the Eucharistic liturgy. That's yeah. why we start off with an examination of conscience and a public confession of unworthiness. It's why in the middle of the Eucharistic celebration, we have this, you know, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter my That You know, we have this corporate understanding that we do not and cannot possibly deserve the sacraments. But I'm sorry, <laughs> there there are bigger things called sins that are not individual isolated actions that they be that they impart a spiritual reality. That yeah, if you kill someone, you become a murderer. Mm-hmm. I should I mean that's legally imprecise. If you murder someone, yeah. you become a murderer. Right. It's not you're just someone who did a murder. Right. You right. know that it imparts a almost a kind not a character. It's not an ontological change, yeah. but it it affects your state of being. Yeah. That you carry that with you. That the effects of that action right. sit with you and have a spiritual repercussion, an ongoing sort of dis- disordering effect. An ongoing yeah. disordering effect, one which is made worse and compounded if you then approach the sacraments right. in a state where you're not contrite, right. where you don't renounce what you've done, and you haven't sought forgiveness and absolution. Right. So, I mean, this is you know, and I I wrote something about this this weekend, which 
not a lot of people read, but a lot of people like the tweet, which, you know, <laughs> fine, take what you can get, I guess, is, I mean, this to me suggests that we have basically a wholesale catechetical crisis that needs to be addressed. And actually, if the bishops want to be Eucharistically coherent, they're going to need a document at least as long on the sacrament of penance because yeah, people right. don't understand what sin is anymore. I think that's right. But I, I think all of that's true. And at the same time, I think it's more than just to say, and this was Bishop Caggiano's point, it's more than just to say people don't understand what sin is. There was evidenced, I think, in the debate that we witnessed among the bishops, um, yes, a, um, a, a, a surprising paucity of theological sophistication among many bishops who spoke during the thing. Um, not all, and I want to come back to that too, but there was evidence among many bishops of a surprising sort of, yeah, real sort of lacuna in theological education related to any number of topics that were connected to this topic. Um, Bishop Caggiano's point is, uh, is however, um, that while the faith must be transmitted with intellectual understanding and while we have failed at that, one could still at the same time sort of get an A in uh, a course devoted to sort of the memorization of um, you know, certain paragraphs of the catechism without ever coming to belief. And that catechesis sure, must... Sure, the devil believes the catechism. Right, precisely. The devil believes the catechism. And therefore, the catechism must, in, must be as much a formation, if you will, a catechesis of the heart, as it is merely the transmission of the information. And so there is the first problem of failure to transmit the information. But that, that first problem is probably well contextualized and perhaps even caused by a broader problem, which is a fail to sort of transmit... Um, a living a, a way of living and seeing and judging, uh, thinking, judging and acting, as the Holy Father would say, as a Catholic, and then to be ever more sort of informed by the teaching of the Church in terms of the way in which we think, judge, and act. And at the center of both of those things is a person. I mean, the, fundamentally, catechesis is um, a mode of orienting uh, orienting us towards the person of Jesus Christ, and uh, and and that, as he said, that there is a crisis in the catechetical landscape. That has that has challenged that, and so there's this idea of this catechetical institute, which will mentor writers and publishers and help them to better create better catechetical material and to better sort of understand what catechetical material is now and what it isn't, and how how people actually do learn the faith. And I hope that this will sort of recognize the way in which, um, as you say, um, internet televangelists uh, play an outsized role. I think, and sometimes teaching people an iteration of the faith. And, I mean, truthfully, Ed, you and I heard from someone this weekend who was very, very nice, but on the other hand, it's unfortunate. You know, we heard from someone this weekend who said that they had converted to Catholicism as an adult. Um, they had converted because they wanted to become a Catholic. They wanted to practice the faith. Um, but they didn't, in their RCIA material, really feel like they learned the content of the faith or get a sort of systematic presentation of it or have their intellectual curiosities about matters of faith answered. And the person was very, very kindly saying to us that listening to us podcast over the past few years has been um, a, a, one of the more sort of fruitful and useful catechetical experiences of their life. Well, thanks be to God for that. I suppose I'm glad that the Lord is able to use us in that way. I'm terrified. But it's also, right, I mean, it also evidences that we are the backstop of la absolute, absolute, absolute last resort. Um, it also evidences the way in which the places and context in which the faith might have been transmitted, in which there were sort of formal opportunities for the transmission of the faith, RCIA, the life of the parish, etc., in which it didn't happen. And so, you know, thanks be to God that we were able to be used that way. But what I mostly came away from that comment with was, boy, there genuinely is a need for this um, renewal of catechesis that this institute, whether it's going to work or not, 
who knows? But what that this institute is at least. No, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And I mean, you know, to say that it's, it's two sides of the same coin that it's important that catechesis, authentic catechesis, imparts a Christian disposition, a Christian worldview, yeah. a Christian mode of thinking. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you don't have the the imparting also of, you know, not necessarily sort of learn by rote penny catechism parrot answers at all, there's nothing wrong with that. If, yeah. You know, if you understand what you're saying, that's actually very good. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's yeah. A, you know, we used to, yeah. you know, it used to be perfectly ordinary for every Catholic if they were asked why, why, who made you and why, right. they could trot out a perfect answer. Right, which is, which can be plunged, you know, to, to great depths, but there is a general crisis in education that goes far beyond catechesis to disparage the rote in favor of something stupid called critical thinking. I'm sure people are going to write me about that, but what I mean no is... No critical thinking. I'm opposed <laughs> to critical thinking. I'm yeah, very uncritical But I'm sure that people are going to nevertheless disparage me about it. But what I mean is that there is a great deal of value to having rote memorization of the... of, of well thought and well articulated expressions of reality, whether that is having um, having the psalms at one's fingertips from by virtue of repetition um, for use in prayer, whether that is having um, a corpus of poetry uh, in, in uh, having been memorized for sort of expression of one's sentiments um, when when one's own words fail, whether that is having sort of rote catechetical answers to the kinds of questions that one might wait with with which one might make wake up in the middle of the night. All of that is extraordinarily useful, and I think a necessary sort of precondition for the sort of deeper kind of critical analysis that seems to be favored often without sort of the foundation having been laid of a, a clear set of, uh, of truths by which one can live. Sure. Well, I mean, in the, here's the thing, and this sort of ties it back into sort of what the bishops were talking about um, during their meeting, which is if you have um, a catechetical formation that forms, if you like, a a mode of thinking um, and a disposition, but it's not filled with content, what you end up with is the kind of cultic natural religiosity yeah. that the nuncio was quoting Pope Francis right. about, which yeah, is which you toss about. up at the Eucharist, you receive the sacraments, you don't really know what they are, you right. have an inkling they're important, but you're there as a kind of theism, yeah. a, a practice of, well, I know there's God, a God, is that? Do I yeah. call him a? Do I call him him? You know, right, it's a, right. I don't know. But which the, actually came up for heaven's sake. Oh, God. <laughs> There was a tiny little. There was a tiny that little. Definitely made the highlight reel. That debate about liturgical translations, when someone was saying, "Well, we have in the rite of penance, the truly translated rite of penance." Some bishop said, "Well, I notice we're saying him, her, but wouldn't it be better for everyone if we didn't use a gendered pronoun?" And we said, "There." Bishop Blair just said, "We're not doing that in this because we're talking. We're giving you options, him or her, but we're sort of not going to deny the fact that there are." appropriately used pronouns for people of different sexes. I, I mean, it was just a very sort of weird insertion into the into a weird couple of days. I was it was one of many things that I was surprised by. I you know, yeah. If I I don't know if it was you who said it, but you know, if you cram enough bishops in a room or a Zoom meeting, sooner or later you'll hear everything. Yeah, I don't know if I said that or not, but it was really something. Anyway, sorry, you were talking. Go ahead. I was, but I mean, it, no, I, it just goes to the point that catechesis is so important that the intellectual content of the faith is so important. It's so important that that content be married to a faithful, um, discerning attitude towards how you approach your whole life and how you approach your entire engagement of intellect. That, as Pope Francis says, 
you know, the church comes to form consciences, not to replace them. That the idea is the church does not rip your conscience out of you and say, we will make all the determinations for you. On the contrary, the church's job is to form your conscience so that you'll make the right choices. Yeah. Now, you know, the way that is often abused, in fact, it's been abused by more than a few people, mercifully, none that I'm aware of from within the conference, but certainly in the coverage around the conferences, you know, people of the sort of, well, I went to Catholic school variety. Yeah. Uh, saying, you know, we're, the church doesn't replace my conscience. The church forms my conscience. My conscience tells me that, you know, abortion is a human right. It's like, well, congratulations, but the church didn't form your conscience to say that. And yeah, yeah. If it did, you're owed an apology. Yeah, right. And the person who did that's kind of... He's owed a punishment. a punishment in this type of the next. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's, you know, just because you have a conscience doesn't mean, and the church recognizes that you have a conscience, doesn't mean your conscience is right. In and fact, if the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ... Then your conscience didn't tell you that. Your misperception of what your conscience is told you, yeah. told you that. Yeah. Well, you can also have your conscience formed and coarsened by frequent consultation with the devil. I mean, you can imagine that your conscience is a cricket, for heaven's sake. You, well, you can, um, and you, you're. But I mean, it, it's a serious point of the sort of screw tape letters variety. Since I know yeah. you like C.S. Lewis, thank you. So do I. No, actually, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. Um, but no, to take a sort of screw tape letters approach, this the idea is that you can. You can destroy your conscience. Right. And that the you know, there is a demonic influence at work in the world to coarsen human conscience, right. to deaden it, to get to the point where you say, Well, you know, it's only the taking of a pill the morning after, so right. you know, a, a, a zygote doesn't implant in the in the yeah. wall of the womb, and you just sort of coarsen it right the way along the line till you're doing, you know, partial birth decapitation of yeah. live infants yeah that that's how you do it yeah. that, and you know someone's conscience for them not, to say and, that's and totally... it's not how you do it alone by the way i mean the point yeah. that there is a path um a path of habituation to the horrendous on the part of the uh, on the part of demons is true and um you didn't hitler didn't start by putting people in line for the right. gas chamber you right. had to work people up to it yeah which you know what he started with is disabled kids and yeah that, exactly yeah. anyhow um uh to that point, Ed, Ed, just about conscience, the other thing that I find sort of interesting about this sort of people have to respect their, you know, we have to respect people's right to conscience. Well, you only have to respect people's right to conscience in the same way that you have to respect every man's right to say his wife is the most beautiful person in the world. Right. You um, can respect that they may think that, but it doesn't make it objectively true. It, it, you, right. It, not only does it not make it objectively true, but the fact that a person sort of ought to act in conscience, you know, ought to act in conscience doesn't mean that a person not also therefore accept the consequences of acting in mm. conscience, right? So there's this sort of idea, well, it's my conscience and the church says the conscience, the primacy of conscience above all things. Well, okay, if that's sort of, if you if you believe that you sort of ought to act, if you've done, a, a, because your conscience tells you to do something, do something and you've done a thorough examination of conscience and you don't believe it's possible in any way that your conscience is malformed, but you genuinely believe that your conscience is a, causing you to act in some way that separates you, you know, in, in, a, in an objective measurable way in this world from the community of the church, well, then there's a consequence to that. And if you genuinely believe that your conscience is telling you to do it, well, then you accept in confidence and, uh, you know, the joy of truth, I suppose, um, living in that consequence, right? I mean, a person who says, I have to act in conscience this way, and my conscience puts me in jail, or my conscience means that the church will prohibit me from Holy Communion, or my conscience means that my wife will throw me out of my ass— you know, um, it is the consequence of that, and I gladly bear it because I have acted in conscience is one thing. A person who says, I have to act in conscience, and therefore you don't have the right to impose any sort of external obligation on me at all. It's ridiculous. Imagine if a police officer called me over and I said, well, in conscience, I genuinely believe that this stretch of I-70 should be a 95. So I was doing 95. Um, no, I mean, okay, if I in some way believe that, fine, but I'm going to get a ticket. And 
I'll pay the ticket sort of gladly because I have done so as a martyr for my conscience. That's what I find the most interesting. I would have found it far more interesting, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here. I would have found it far more interesting if the politicians who responded to the bishops, their misperception of the bishop's letter. So after the bishops passed a thing to, you know, passed a vote to write a statement in the future, which will be debated upon, and after the New York Times and other publications sort of reported it as bishops, some of which are ostensibly Catholic publications, reported it as bishops take aim at Biden receiving Holy Communion. Well, they also said bishops, bishops flout yeah. Vatican warning. Right, exactly. All of these things which are not true. After False all of that, tendentious some politicians, and especially one California congressman, a guy named Ted Lieu, said, well, I believe that um, a woman has a right to choose, and I believe that there should be gay marriage, and all, all these other things, and I dare the church to uh, to, to deny me communion. Uh, snoozeroni, right? I mean, okay, it would have been far more interesting if he would have said, I believe these things and I accept that I can't, that the bishops will prohibit me from receiving communion, but I'm right and they're wrong and that will be proven in eternity. I mean, that would have at least showed a commitment to conscience. Otherwise, it's like, well, I want my positions which are contrary to the church and to have this cake that I can eat too. And it's like, oh, well, okay, so you don't really think there should be any consequences to that. How committed are you to it really? It's, it's exhibitionism. A person who said, no, I accept this temporal consequence so confident am I in the Lord being on my side, would to me be far more interesting even if I thought they were wrong. Yeah, absolutely yeah. it would. But I mean, this is the, the sort of performative nonsense that we got from the congressman and several of his confreres in the you know in a letter that they published sort of in the hours after the USCCP meeting went into executive session, sort of affirming, self-affirming. Yeah. In effect, we are devout and observant Catholics of good standing yeah. who champion a woman's right to access to abortion, and it, it, it is, I mean, this is, to, to sort of borrow an enlightenment, and to borrow and mangle an enlightenment phrase, because that's where this sort of ridiculous mentality comes from, credo ergo sum, mm-hmm. you know, I believe that I'm a good Catholic, right, therefore, therefore I am a good yeah. Catholic, right. I believe that you can yeah. kill babies in the womb and then yeah. still be a good Catholic, because I say you can, and that's yeah. what I believe, and therefore give me the sacraments. I, I would, I'm, I'm, we cannot make windows into people's souls, and so I wouldn't want yeah. to assert as fact or presume anything. But I would be surprised to learn that any of the signatories of that letter had any kind of decent theology or understanding or the ability to articulate what actually the sacrament of the Eucharist is. Now, somebody wrote that letter, and I'm far, I'm far more interested in the person who had the theological sophistication to write the letter than the people who signed on to it. But. I am also interested in that, J.D. <laughs> I suspect that, well, first of all, any familiarity one has with you know, your average member of Congress, uh, let alone any collection of <laughs> 40 or more of them, yeah. um, they're not able to speak in language like that uh, right. uh, often as individuals. And certainly a group of them can't get together and Precisely. articulate that. Precisely. So, yeah, definitely someone wrote that for them. And I, I, would, I would stake a fairly upper range watch. <laughs> on that not being a sitting member of the House of I Representatives. I suspect you're right about that. I used to know a priest, Ed. He, he's dead now. God rest him. This priest um, was a diocesan priest of a diocese that I was familiar with, and he uh, was ordained before the Second Vatican Council, and God love him, he couldn't accept the liturgical reforms after the council. He couldn't He couldn't accept the, the Novus Ordo, as it were, the the... the the new uh, the ordinary form yeah the ordinary form of the mass the, the new, new normal the new Roman missile after the second Vatican Council he couldn't accept it he said I don't uh, I I don't think that I could do that I, I I have problems in conscience with these texts and I believe that they are flawed in the in various ways and I cannot accept them and uh, he was 
he so he told his bishop, you know, this was sort of shortly after the council, I can't do it. There was no sort of allowance at that time for a priest to be able to celebrate the extraordinary, what we now call the extraordinary form of, ma- of the Mass, what you might call the traditional Latin Mass, if you're of the ilk to call it that. Um, there was no provision at that time for a priest to be able to celebrate the, 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 the Mass as it was before the re- reforms of the council. Um, and, uh, and more to the point, even if there had been, his problem was not just practical that he couldn't do it, but that he had these theological problems where he couldn't accept its validity. And so he was suspended um, because he couldn't accept these things, and there was a back and forth with his bishop, and he was suspended. And uh, he said okay, and he um, got an apartment, and he lived uh, as a suspended cleric, which is to say he prayed the office, and he had holy hours, and he celebrated a private, a private mass in defiance of his bishop at that time in the extraordinary form. Now it would be a little bit different. He would be, I think, at least probably permitted to do so. I don't know that he'd have a stable a chatus of the faithful, but it would be at least a little bit more clear that he probably would be okay to celebrate. But in defiance of his bishop, he celebrated the extraordinary form of the Mass and wasn't angry about it, um, you know, wasn't railing on about it. He didn't have a YouTube channel. He, he you know, he didn't he didn't even have, like, um, he, he didn't allow himself to become sort of a hero of anybody. He just lived in his apartment and celebrated the Mass and and uh, and prayed the office and did some charitable works and, and things like that. And... Um, he remained that way, and towards the end of his life, um, he wanted to kind of resolve this situation of being suspended by the diocese, and he approached the diocese in which he was, and the question was, like, would he accept the validity of the reforms of the Mass? And he said that he absolutely couldn't theologically believe that they were in error, and he couldn't, and he said it with regret. I mean, he genuinely said, I wish that I could, but I can't. And it was explained to him that if he couldn't, then he would remain in this situation of suspension, and uh, he said something that I was struck by. He said, well, I'll have to talk to the Lord about that in my judgment, and the bishop will have to talk to the Lord about it in his judgment too. In other words, he felt in in his conscience, which I think was a malformed, a malformed conscience in a certain way, that this was what he had to do, but he wasn't making a show about it. He was just living it, and I think with a great deal of regret. Um, and, um, and I hope that the Lord saw in earnest, I hope that his earnest endeavor to follow his conscience was true. I hope that he was earnestly trying to fo- follow his conscience and spending the whole of his life trying to do that and to form his conscience according to the teaching of the church. I hope he was studying this um, question which had led to this great sort of crisis point and conflict point of his life with alacrity, and I believe that he was. Um, and I, I, I am inclined to believe that God would be merciful to such a person who genuinely sort of seemed to try. I mean, I, I could be totally wrong. He could have been a scam artist, I guess, but who genuinely seemed to be wrestling with the thing and trying to understand it and wanting to be where the church was and not being able to. Um, but I have to, I genuinely hope that God would be merciful to such a person, and I think I believe that he would be. I have, But I but I also can say I respect that he was in the situation that he was in and, and you know, had this crisis of conscience, which he accepted and didn't expect sort of that he wouldn't suffer temporal consequences of it, but was willing to sort of, work through all that. I mean, I... I mean, he had the courage of his convictions. He had the courage of his convictions, is what I'm trying to say. And I'd I'd like to hope that God was merciful to him, but more than that, that to me is what it looks like, I think, to be in a sort of conflict of conscience with the authority of the church, which is a terrible situation for any of us to be, in part because I think he recognized the gravity of such a situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most sort of striking thing about it is that this fellow recognized what it was to be in a conflict of conscience with his bishop and with, with the Holy Father. And uh, and that's not what sort of one might see from the exhibitionism of 
60 congressmen saying, no, we act in conscience to do this. And we tweeted at the letter and wanted to say, I defy you to deny me Holy Communion. I mean, this priest knew that he would die not being able to can celebrate the, well, he didn't believe in can celebration, but <laughs> not being able to, you know, go to Mass at, you know, an assistant Mass celebrated by his bishop or something like that. I mean, this priest knew that he wouldn't, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he would die at the, in this relationship of animus, tension, uh, I guess the right word for it might be, I mean, he wasn't formally declared to be in schism, but, but in a practical sense, the right word for it might even be schism. He knew that he would die that way, and he carried that heavily. Should I be in a, the kind of place where I cannot accept, for some reason, what the church says, please, God, may I take it as seriously as that. And please, God, may the Lord be so merciful to me as to resolve it, um, you know, to help me resolve this this problem of my conscience. Sure. If I ever had convictions, I would hope I would. <laughs> <laughs> but I pray for that priest. I mean, I do. I really, I pray for that priest and for a soul. And um, there might be other sort of points at which a person finds himself unable to sort of give assent to the teachings of the church. And that's not a, that's not a small thing, but it's not, um, it's not the kind of thing that one um, brazenly tweets about with a, with a dare to the bishop to deny him Holy Communion. So the other thing, there were two things that really struck me as being sort of solution oriented towards this issue of Eucharistic coherence and the catechetical, pro, you know, the sort of grave theological lacuna that we see. The one was uh, the catechetical institute, but the other was this project that strikes me as being I think quite cool, this this notion of a Eucharistic revival, a sort of three-year... Uh, Bishop Andrew Cousins gave a presentation, and we I interviewed him last week, you can read about it at the Pillar, but he gave a presentation to the bishops about this idea of what he called a Eucharistic revival, um, a three-year period in which there would be sort of um, uh, efforts to stir into flames, as he said, the, the, the faith of the Church with regard to a love for the, for the Eucharistic presence of the Lord, um, that would have a diocesan component and a parish component and then perhaps a national component, although the bishops haven't uh, permitted that yet. They have to vote on that. And some bishops brought up the idea of a of a, um, a regional component, which I thought was very interesting, that in addition to having sort of events at the parish that are focused on adoration and preaching and confessions and a real sort of call to, uh, to deeper Eucharistic faith and deeper Eucharistic piety and events at the diocesan level in a national event, that there might also be events like maybe for the whole state of California or the whole state of New York or something like that. And the bishop who raised that point raised a good point, I think, which is to say that um, people that in his diocese might want the experience of going on a pilgrimage and that there's a real obvious value in the life of the church and in the, in the sort of spirituality of being a pilgrim, but might not be able to afford to go to a national event. And so these regional events might be a good idea. So that was actually like something that came out of a USCCB discussion that was like just a good idea. And I thought that doesn't happen every day that there's like a practical thing that might happen as a consequence of this discussion that I thought was was good. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that Eucharistic uh, Revival thing. I, I like the idea. There was, of course, the bishop who told us last week that unless we get the catechetical content right on the Eucharist and Catholics actually believe in what the Eucharist is, such a Eucharistic revival could become bread and he circus. He said bread and circus. It was a hell of a line. This bishop said, unless we get the, sorry, he said, unless we get the, the catechesis right, our Eucharistic revival is bread and circus. It was a hell of a line. And I, I think it's true, you know, unless it's the doctrine is right. It's yeah, right. I mean, unless the doctrine is right and the sort of underlying theological principles that are, that are worked on in this thing are right, then it could become sort of empty pageantry, I guess was his point. That's true. I don't, I, I have confidence that at least at the sort of national level, the bishops who are organizing it seem to be wanting to use it to teach the faith, but it was a fascinating way to put it. It's a fascinating line. No, I have, I like it. I mean, one of the things I, I wrote about this in um, my newsletter briefly at the end, which is, you know, it, it does well to remind us that the things that matter in the church 
are almost never contained in a document produced by yeah. anything with the word conference attached yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, or committee, council occasionally. Um, <laughs> occasionally. If the word ecumenical precedes the word. Yeah, never if it's yeah. pontifical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, nearly. Nearly. Well, yeah. okay, the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts, yeah, otherwise right. no. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the expressions of mass popular piety are what often sustain the faith and the practice of the faith in a really beautiful way in parishes and dioceses, whether it's Corpus Christi processions, whether it's a Eucharistic revival. Popular piety for 2,000 years has been the thing which has... And often safeguarded the faith yeah. in the face of terrible theology yeah. visited upon the church by her ministers. You know, I mean, yeah. what percentage of the bishops in Europe were Arians at one point? Right. You know, it was like a third? Right. Maybe. I've heard some people claim it was a majority, and I'm prepared to believe it. Um, but the point is that the popular piety of the faithful is what sustains uh, sustains the practice of the faith uh, in, in difficult periods. And so, for example, last, I think it was Saturday, Saturday was the bicentennial of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and I don't know if you noticed, but on Friday the parliamentarian changed for yeah. The OCCB. I didn't, oh, believe you me, I noticed. I'm sure you did. The parliamentarian changed for the OCCB, meaning from long-standing parliamentarian Archbishop Dennis Schnur to I can't remember who who pinched it for him, but it, it's worth knowing. I'm going to kind of look it up because that will be the parliamentarian of the future, ladies and gentlemen. Perhaps. However, Archbishop Dennis Schnur took a day's break from the conference being the parliamentarian um, because he had to go back. Well, not go back. It's all Zoom sessions. But he was he was otherwise engaged because he was celebrating his archdiocese bicentennial, part of which they had a 300 mile Marian procession. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's bonkers. I love that. And, you know, people 300 miles. People wrote to us beforehand and asked us, will you cover this? And I really wanted to cover it, but we had the conference. You know what I mean? And and I'm glad we covered the conference and all that. But I'm glad you wrote about it in your newsletter, too, because that kind of thing, that's the living faith. Um, The living faith. And I think Bishop Cousins wanted to emphasize this when he talked. He said, you know, the living Eucharistic faith is also the faith that loves the poor and um, the faith that loves to proclaim the gospel, but um, but that can't be sort of separated from a living Eucharistic faith. And something like a three hundred mile pilgrimage is indeed the living faith. Yeah, I, yeah. you can keep your con- your conference nerdery, JD. Give me that old time religion. <laughs> Give me that old time religion. Well, you know, to, to that point, you know, one of the criticisms that I heard of the Eucharistic um, revival idea. So the idea of this whole Eucharistic revival is like a year of. Forming leaders at the diocesan level to better know love, uh, better know love and 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 adore the Eucharist, and then um, sort of sending them out in their parishes to have, have parish events for a year with increased adoration and processions and Eucharistic preaching and holy hours and these kinds of things and ex, you know exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in various ways, and then subsequent to that might be a national event and or regional events, as I said. And some people sort of said, well, I hope that there's a takeaway from these national events that they can come back and be implemented in the diocese, and I hope there's a plan for that. And I've heard that before. So in 2017, there was something called the Convocation for Catholic Leaders in the in the in, in the U.S. Where oh, that was of, that jamboree in Florida. Yeah, the jamboree in Florida, where lots of people got together from. I think every diocese was asked to send I don't know 15 representatives or something like that. So people who are involved in the life of the church in every diocese went went down to Florida for a couple of days of talks and things like that. Um, and there was a lot of talk afterwards about like, well, I hope that there will be implementation so that we'll know it's money well spent and things like that. And you hear that sometimes after events like World Youth Day too, and I um, I reject that. Um, I reject that notion that there should be implementation of or or sort of diocesan uh, or parish sort of takeaways and ongoing programs to better implement and Im- impact the, the the lessons of these things. Sometimes the thing itself is the thing. 
sometimes the national event, people from all over this country getting together in what I hope would be uh, a baseball state. Well, what, what I hope would maybe be, you know, where a cool place to have it would be Lambo. Well, maybe not, but uh, a cool place to have it would be maybe um, I don't know a, f- a football stadium. I can uh, um, or or something like that, or a baseball stadium or something. Um, but just because it would be so many people, maybe the Michigan one that can hold a thousand, hundred thousand people, or whatever. I don't know. The point is, a hundred thousand Catholics all together in a place to adore the Blessed Sacrament. I don't think you can find five Catholics on the campus of the University of Michigan. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's why you got to bring them in. But a hundred thousand Catholics in a place to adore the Blessed Sacrament is the thing, right? I mean, that's beautiful and extraordinary and life-changing in ways that one might not expect if one sort of says, okay, well, what are going to be the five-point, what's going to be the five-point plan for sort of implementation of this in the parish level or bring it home to the parish or continuing the, the, the experience or something like that? It is the thing. And the Holy Spirit will work through things like that or the convocation of Catholic world leaders or, or World Youth Day, for God's sake, will we'll, we'll, we'll work through it, um, not for everyone, but for some people uh, to have seen seeds planted, to have had the experience of Christian fraternity, maybe for people who feel like they're alone in the practice of the faith or alone in their sort of demographic in practicing the faith or don't have any Catholic friends or to have given them an insight or a vision. And those seeds will come to blossom and sort of germinate over a period of time. I I, I think about, uh, and I'm not trying to be cliche about that, I just think like, so I live in Denver uh, where World Youth Day was in, in 1993 and flowing out of World Youth Day in Denver in 1993, not in a sort of systematic organizational churches as a business way, but just in, in the in the seeds planted in people's hearts were lots of things that have become centers of ecclesial renewal in the life of the church, um, among them vocations to uh, priesthood and religious life and marriage, but the, the notion of apostolates or sort of the recognition of various things. And, and I think not just sort of among one sort of set, but in, in lots of ways. I've heard priests of the fraternity of St. Peter who celebrate the extraordinary form say, you know, we really got a vision for the way in which the extraordinary form of the Mass could be significant because of what we saw with World Youth Day in Denver in 1993. And you wouldn't sort of expect that, you know, because mm-hmm. World Youth Days are thought of as being jamborees, as, as it were. But the Lord works in different ways, and I think it's okay for the thing, people to come together to adore the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, to be the thing, to say, yeah, this is going to be costly, time-consuming time and costly, and um, uh, maybe seem impractical in various ways. But it's worth doing in and of itself and then trusting that the Holy Spirit will be the one to sort of draw out from it fruit rather than sort of programmatic uh, compulsion of fruit subsequently. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I mean, th- this is one thing that I think doesn't come out of the USCCB during this Zoom session and the bishops who are saying real conversation um, and debate requires us to be together in person. And I think that is that's a fair comment. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know, and well, 75% of the bishops didn't agree that that meant that they couldn't authorize the drafting of a document for them to meet about and discuss in November. But I think there is a real need for them to be in person together because, as you say, sometimes the being together is the thing. Right. That this is, you know, this is the experience of a kind of, a very important kind, a very important aspect of communion is that to be in what, I mean, you're sitting in my office right now, which is, you know, it's a different kind of podcast for us than, you know, I can't. Read the newspaper while you monologue. And I'm here. And the reason I'm here is because we want to work on a couple of projects that we know require us to be in proximity together. Now, we made a decision that we would draft some initial outlines of those projects when we were not together. And we felt both perfectly comfortable saying we should proceed on these projects. But now for the rubber to meet the road on them, we wanted to be 
together. Yeah. Not in a weird way. I say it out loud and it sounds weird, but we wanted to sit in the same room and to be able to no, talk No, it's not weird. Through. This is something I saw. This is. Did you see I said, Did you see this thing on Twitter over the weekend? Like uh, no, I have not looked at Twitter in days and days and days. That's smart of My you. My mental health is I, great. I, some, I somehow got tagged into a thing where I, I don't, I have no idea how it got started. Oh, no, I do. Something in the New Yorker about a, a mass grave of Grecian warriors and they were saying, oh, well, some of them were holding hands. So this proves oh, that the whole battalion was clearly just gay couples. And, it's, and anyway, uh, some Newmanian things of blessed St. John Henry Newman, you know, was wanted to be buried with his friend Ambrose St. John. And now everybody looks at that and says, well, they must have been a, uh, a, in a sexual relationship with each other. And it's like, no, they had a, a deeply committed and personal and intimate friendship, which far exceeds that of ours. Um, <laughs> thanks far <to> exceeds. <laughs> but, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the, the, that doesn't have to mean that it was gay, which is sort of becomes the immediate presumption thereof. Yeah. Well, now, at the same time, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there were no real feelings of love between these two men that can't be recognized as being uh, meaningful. Um, but not all love is the love of um, uh, desire and consumption. This, not all love is erotic. It's erotic, uh, precisely. Yeah. Which was the thing that I saw on Twitter, that, you know, this, this sort of drive to reinterpret every male, every close male friendship, every um, kind of emotional intimacy between men through the sort of extreme 21st century lens of, well, it's all just sublimated homosexuality if it's not actually gay, Yeah, um, is, is nuts. I mean, I... I I'm, I'm also kind of I well, so I agree that it is nuts, and it's a completely ridiculous historical um, lens to to force on things. Um, so that's silly, and it's the sort of silliness you'd expect in like the New Yorker. But um, the the thing that I found weird was that people were saying, "Yes, and this is why male friendship is you know dying out, and people don't have the close friendships with." with other men that they used to and that the world used to, you know, have as a sort of ordinary part of the social fabric and, you know, made reference to things like Tolkien and, you know, the idea of, you know, the Officer-Batman relationship and that you could have really close, interdependent, emotional relationships with people. That- Sorry, the Officer-Batman relationship is something that I know what you're talking about, but since most people now are thinking about Commissioner Gordon and Batman, maybe you just say what that is for Well, it's not... Uh, that. Yeah, okay. No, the Officer-Batman... And as you might know, is from England. I'm... Oh, whatever. Anyway, no, the officer Batman relationship being that between an officer and his sort of designated personal staff of one. His aide de camp. Yes. The, yeah. per, the person who served as both sort of valet, uh, personal servant, body man. If you need a pop culture reference, think, think about George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. His name was Alexander Hamilton. Was he, was he his Batman? No, he was private secretary to George Washington, but it's a helpful problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, it would... Um, I mean, the most no, the most well known literary officer Batman relationship is actually in the Lord of the Rings because that's yeah. the idea of Frodo and Sam as yeah. an officer and his Batman. Anyway, but I, you know, people were saying, well, we've you know by posing this sort of stupid um, retconning of all intimate male emotional relationships as either um, overt or sublimated homosexual relationships, it's stopping men from having friendships now. And I just thought, is it? Are people that weird? I don't know if people are that weird or not. I do think though. That it probably. I mean, I don't have friends, so I need to. I, I have to ask. I, I do think. I can I, assure you that I've been at. You know, if you go to the Bancroft Arms on the Mile End Road at Kicking Out Time, or at least if you did ten years ago, there there was a lot of intimate male relationships going on there, and none of them were homosexual. But you know, people weren't afraid of sharing their emotions with one another. Yeah, I, I do think that there probably is a way in which that is that that it's true that um, a misunderstanding of every sort of feeling of love isn't necessarily an erotic feeling or must necessarily be expressed erotically um, undermines the ability, I think, for, for, the, for the church and for just us as human beings to talk about 
friendship or to even appreciate I mean this is this is I think a real problem to appreciate why people of the same sex might have a long and even sort of um, de facto committed friendship that is not necessarily erotic by which they can you know um, by which they are both sort of mutually aided and supported I, I think there's a long history of that in culture and in the church and and absolutely um, um, and I do think probably there's a way in which we might be more suspicious of it, I, I, I think, although if you think about sort of the rules about particular friendship in religious life at other times in the church's history, I'm not 100% sure about that. But uh, yeah, how do we get talking about this? I forget. Me too. But uh, it, I, I, I guess what we should do now is um, I'll say one takeaway that really surprised me from the USCCB meeting, and you can say one too if you want, um, and then I want to give us a chance to talk about one other thing. But one takeaway that really surprised me is a person who came to the fore in leadership um, that I did not wholly expect was Bishop Rhodes, the chair of the Doctrine Committee. Actually, the interesting thing is he's the outgoing chair of the Doctrine Committee, so I think this is his last meeting as chair of the, of the Doctrine Committee. Uh, and, then, um, and then Bishop um, Dan Flores takes up sort of the reins. But um, Bishop Rhodes was responsible for uh, keeping this discussion going, this several-several-hour discussion among the bishops in which bishops were saying really some things that were, I think, helpful, you know, the, um, that Bishop Rhodes seemed to think were helpful. We should have the opportunity between now and November to talk about this in our regional meeting so that every bishop can feel like they're hurt. You know, some things that Bishop Rhodes seemed to think were helpful, and then some questions that Bishop Rhodes seemed to think he wasn't sure what to do with. Um, uh, Archbishop Wensky saying we should, uh, as, oh no, sorry, that was part of the Eucharistic Revival. It's part of the Eucharistic Revival conversation, Archbishop Wensky goes, and by the way, we should do something about hymns, because I don't like a lot of the hymns, which was kind of out, <laughs> out of the field a little bit. Yeah, but um, I mean, they have, they, some of the hymns are garbage. Some of the hymns have, are garbage. But, and they have, I mean, they, they moved to ban I, they, all they are welcome. They which, did. I don't want to tangent on, not my, in the on my sidetrack. Um, but, uh, but there were points at which Bishop Rhodes seemed clearly not to know what, you know, what to do with certain suggestions, or when certain suggestions seemed to be disconnected, and there was obvious manifestly obvious disagreement among the bishops about what to do. Now, it turns out that disagreement was 75-25, but there was real disagreement. But the point is, Rhodes, it seems to me, emerged... I mean, there's a lot of talk, and, you know, you can question its utility, but there's a lot of talk about sort of who are the prospective sort of uh, officer candidates in the conference in the in the years to come. And it does seem to me that Rhodes emerged as having um, a calm demeanor and ability to demonstrate that he was listening, an affability... Um, I don't think anyone would say, I, I, I could be mistaken about that, but I don't think any bishop would say at the end of the day that by the time that conversation concluded, they hadn't been heard by Rhodes and that Rhodes hadn't offered them some reciprocity, even while I think sticking to his, his guns about what he thought was the right thing to do. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. So that was one surprising takeaway for me. What's a surprising takeaway for you, buddy? Uh, well, I guess the most surprising takeaway for me was the debate that didn't happen on the pastoral framework for marriage and family yeah. life, um, which, you know, we expected, and you wrote about it, that you know, we were expecting a good old-fashioned Demoris Letizia fight. Yeah. Like, I was ready for some, um, you know, a sort of throwback Thursday yeah. of the bishops to, you know, pretend like, you know, argue like it's 2016 again. Yeah. And they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, they, they had a sort of 15-minute debate and then a break, and then they came back and had another, like, 10-minute debate about the addition of the letters FF to a citation in a single footnote. Yeah. Um, before voting on it and then splitting right down the middle. Yeah. Like 5248. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really interesting. But what was fascinating about it was you got this right down the middle vote on something as, you know, externally minor as putting FF yeah. after a paragraph citation from Morris Letizia. Um, and, and so that was interesting in itself to sort of show that the bishops are still really 
you know, sensitive and divided on how best to read and implement Amoris Laetitia. Yeah. But the part that was fascinating for me was they couldn't say it out loud, or at least they didn't. They didn't. They didn't yeah. say it out loud. Nobody yeah. said during the debate the words marriage, divorce, Eucharist, remarried. Yeah, um, but that, that was that was exactly that was what exactly was being what they were talking discussed, about. but without ever discussing it. Yeah. Without ever without ever going beyond. Well, and I think lines two twenty one, citation two ninety one. Could you know we could put this in? I mean, it was all done in this very sort of. You don't like it that I say coded because that implies um, intentionality. Intentionality, which I'm not suggesting there is, but I think that there was probably, I think at least, given how the tone of every other debate in the conference takes place, if I, I even if there wasn't deliberate intentionality, I think there was subconscious desire not to articulate the discussion about more sense. Yeah, and well, also you talk about delicious ironies. I mean, for me, the delicious irony of the entire conference was that they collapsed. The entire debate about Amoris Laetitia into, into a footnote. footnote. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, Cardinal Supich even said when he was initially sort of raising his concern about about this document, this pastoral framework on marriage that the bishops put out, Cardinal Supich even said, and I, gosh, if this was intentional, my hat's off to him, because Cardinal Supich said, uh, now I notice there's not even so. Chapter eight is the is the chapter of Amoris Laetitia that has been at the center of controversy now since. The document came out in 2016, and especially within Chapter 8, footnote 351 is the one that has been, if you listen to this podcast, you know there's been a big debate about Amoris Laetitia, and footnote 351 is the center of that debate in Chapter 8. And Cardinal Supich, <laughs> I hope it was intentional, raises his hands and he says, during the discussion period, and he says, you know, I noticed there's no direct reference to Chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia in our pastoral plan, not even a footnote. And <laughs> it was amazing. I was, I mean, like, if that, if he, if he just... Uh, if he just did that by accident, wow. But I'd like to believe he, he planned that out. It was hilarious. It was amazing. It was very funny. Yeah. Um, for, you know, co- for, for As a piece of unintentional performance art, the whole thing yeah. was absolutely top tier. Well, and I guess my honest, you know, that, 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 that gives me another takeaway from the meeting. And it's this. There, there is, um, I asked during the press conference about this dis- disagreement about how much and more Satitia should be referenced in, um, in the document and how much it was referenced. And in truth... The uh, the controversial footnote is not referenced directly. The question that the Holy Father, you know, the Holy Father says that it might be possible for Catholics who are divorced and civilly remarried in a sexual relationship with someone who is not their partner you know, under some circumstances, he says, to have the help of the sacraments. And he doesn't elaborate. And then since then, you know, there have been dueling commentaries and interpretations and questions about which of those are normative and which of those are not normative. And what is the, did the Holy Father intend to endorse them? And how do different conferences reconcile these things? And I mean, you know, there has been this whole to do about it, to be sure. And it is true that the pastoral framework didn't um, didn't make reference to the thing didn't take an interpretive stance on it. And I think there are some legitimate possible answers for that, that it is indeed the prerogative of every diocesan bishop to interpret that according to, you know, his own thing, that the conference is not sort of mandated to interpret that authoritatively or empowered to do so, and that the conference doesn't want to undermine the legitimate authority of each diocesan bishop, which is exactly a point that they also wanted to make in the Eucharistic coherence debate. So I think there are a number of answers why the conference didn't do it. I don't know if it was a conscious decision on any of those things, or more likely, the conference saying, let's punt on this controversial thing because we don't want a controversy over it. But that punting is probably the appropriate response for a conference anyway, if you follow those those other arguments. But it's true that it wasn't in there. And, you know, I sort of asked. It seemed there was a controversy about it, and it didn't seem, you know, one person said, I noticed it's not in there. And then another person said, oh, no, it's in there. And then Cardinal uh, or Archbishop Gomez called time, and that was the end of it. Um, you know, and so I asked about it, and the answer was like, oh, no, I think that uh, the Archbishop's answer was a satisfactory answer to Cardinal Supich's question. And I don't think that if you were in there and you could follow the debate, you would believe that to be true. 
because Cardinal Stupich, who has endorsed that footnote as what he calls a paradigm shift in the church, clearly has a view on these interpretive questions. And Archbishop Corleone clearly has a view on these interpretive questions, too. And I think Archbishop Corleone, you know, could have said, we don't want to sort of take, we don't want to undermine the, that bishops can take different stance on this. He could have done any number of things. But instead, he just said, no, it's in there. And then it was the end of the conversation because they called time for, for lunch or whatever. But in the press conference, it was kind of like, no, no, everything was worked out. And if I had a piece of counsel for the conference, it would be that that kind of everything is worked out response, when clearly it isn't, there will be more dispute among the conference. There will be much more disagreement in the conference in November when they're actually hashing out this document and other things too. It's better, I think, to acknowledge the disagreements than to suggest that they're not there when they obviously are. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the knee-jerk reaction of saying everything's final, the bishops agree with each other, because, I mean, with the exception of some notable points of disagreement, and I would argue some serious rhetorical differences, which lead to even bigger problems like the state of sin and things like that, um, you know, the, the, uh, there is nevertheless, in, in those press conferences, there are other journalists there who have basically pre-written a Bishops yeah. violate on or whatever. So I can understand the knee-jerk reactions you downplay that because if, for example, there are entire outlets dedicated to insisting there is a gigantic rift between the U.S. bishops as a conference sure. and the Holy Father and the Vatican, which is patent nonsense, sure. especially on the issue of abortion, um, I can understand why you're... I can understand the motivation for it. I'm not sure that it it's not prevents them I would from, agree. From, from doing that. And, you know, in my experience... If Mr. and Mrs. Flynn are having a fight and the kids are upset by it, sort of saying to them, mom and dad aren't fighting, it isn't helpful. You know, it's probably no. far more helpful to say, you know, dad shouldn't have talked to mom. My, my wife's a saint, so she doesn't usually have a thing that, that is a fault. But dad shouldn't have said that to mom in that way. And mom was impatient because you people are not – or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you know, it's probably far better. I love the to, idea that you refer to your children as you people. <laughs> it's probably better to give them an age-appropriate explanation of the thing than to just suggest that it's not happening. And I think... Yeah, the age-appropriate level for the New York Times is probably four. <laughs> but They might struggle with even that one. But. but there is a value, I think, in that. So anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it is a thing. I'm going to tie your hands behind your back if you keep slapping okay. the desk. I'm sorry. I keep slapping the desk and it keeps making noise in the podcast. I don't know if our producer's going to edit that out or not. Ed, before we wrap up, um, you tweeted something yesterday... And, uh, and I tweeted a response to it, and it has apparently, as I say, I haven't looked at Twitter in a couple of days, but it has apparently lit a bit of a conflagration among people that you and I have been talking about talking about for a while. Because we've been talking for a while about whether or not we should sort of talk about um, this sort of mo- a rising, well, maybe rising movement among some Catholic um, writers and voices uh, who are talking with an increasing amount about a political philosophy called integralism. And we seem to have provoked the ire of the integralists. Do you want to talk about it? No, I find it boring and irrelevant. <laughs> we can talk about it on the episode, next episode if you want, although I have a better idea for What's what we can that? talk about. I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. You can pick whether we'll talk about okay. integralism or we'll talk about something uh, I, I find it boring. I would say this. I think one problem with too much sort of – one way in which sort of political philosophy can become ideology is when one is unable to accept the legitimate criticisms of one's own political philosophy. Um, so I think that you know there is something – in the history of the church, there is something to um, the the glory of Christian kingdoms, but there are also deficiencies, you know, for the proclamation of the gospel in the same places. And um, when one can't sort of take an honest examination of all of those things, then um, there's a danger that one's philosophy has become an ideology. 
Well, um, what, okay, fine. If you're, I'm not. I'm, no, because if we're going to talk about this on another podcast, I don't want to just you know talk, okay. talk about it. You know, three seconds. Is this a teaser? I will say this. I think a lot of people who profess themselves to be integralists um, fail to distinguish adequately between a truly integralist state and a merely confessional state. Mm, I have no problem with a confessional state and thinking it would be a very good thing. Uh, and, I agree with you about that. I an think integralist state, which is what we got under Constantine after his conversion, I would argue, is inevitably bad for the church. Yeah. That, I, and there's a difference between the two. I'm inclined to think that as well. And but we, you got to know your history, J.D., and yeah. you got to know your ecclesiology, and, and you got to know your canon law. And at the same time, you have to be able to recognize um, that everything that everything that that the church is sort of the church's perspective on these questions is necessarily flexible and conditioned by the circumstances of time and place, and um, that that means that all these things are prudential judgments, and prudential judgments are always weighing exercises between possibly good outcomes and possibly bad outcomes. And if one can't recognize the possibility of possibly bad outcomes, then it seems difficult to make a weighing exercise. Exactly. Okay. We can talk about that more later if you want, but again, like... <laughs> you don't want to. Look, people I, seem to, we've been I know a Habsburg. He's a great he's guy. He's a great man. I And his family have produced some wonderful saints. I just, I have other interests too. <laughs> All right, everybody, you have been listening to uh, a Viva Voce episode of the Pillar Podcast. I am your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flint, and I am in the office of my pal, uh, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Good night, everybody. Good night.